It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Labour Party has a, I would say, well-earned reputation for shiftiness because Keir Starmer has had to kind of duck and dive in order to move the Labour Party from its Corbynite position some way to the right of where it fought the 2019 election. Welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher. You heard there the FT Stephen Bush talking about the Labour leader. Stephen's here with me in the studio now. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Lucy. And the FT's Miranda Green. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Lucy. Coming up, we'll take a look at the flip-flopping on some of the big issues by both the Conservative and Labour leadership. We'll also consider whether Suella Braverman's hardline rhetoric on refugees changes the dial on government policy on migration. Plus, with the conference season now well underway, the FT's Anna Gross will join us for an update on the Lib Dem gathering this week. So, uh, first up, let's talk about the HS2 extension from Birmingham to Manchester. At the time of speaking, it's unclear whether this northern leg of the line will actually go ahead. Uh, But the topic certainly dominated when Rishi Sunak did a broadcasting blitz on Thursday speaking to local radio. Here's what he had to say to BBC Manchester's Anna Jameson. Like I said, I'm not not speculating on future things. We've got spades in the ground right now and we're getting on. But what people also want to know... government is always making sure that we get value for money out of everything we do but that's just a statement of the obvious right but but i think what people also should know because i know there's a lot of focus on this one thing but actually what are the journeys that people use most in greater manchester or across the north north it's it's on in their cars right now getting to work taking their kids to school making sure that the roads are free of potholes well, I'm still cringing there at uh, Sunak's mispronunciation uh, of uh, North, although perhaps we should give him some slack on that. Um, but Miranda, we could hear him there trying to dodge uh, the question. This has just become a colossal headache for the government, hasn't it? I mean, if they do press ahead, it's going to cost more than £100 billion. If they don't, it could leave this just a total white elephant. It's a horrific political decision. And either he goes ahead with a project with a ballooning price tag insane ballooning price tag, or he has a kind of mishmash edited version which will end up disappointing one section of the country and not others and still have a big price tag, or he dumps the entire thing, thus exposing that the previous Conservative administrations before his own have presided over a total public policy disaster that was designed to help with a core part of the Conservative mission, which was this idea of levelling up the north of England and the Midlands and trying to enable England's economy to be more balanced and to spread prosperity. And, you know, from a cynical Conservative point of view, therefore spread like the likelihood of voting Tory across those areas that they were so successful in winning in 2019. And there are a lot of angry people across the north of England as that interview showed and he's now got to go up to Manchester, gather his party there in one of the cities that feels most abandoned by his decision to backtrack on a commitment to the HS2 
northern leg. So it's an appalling political fix, as it were, <laughs> for the Prime Minister. Well, Stephen, that's right. I mean, the timing couldn't be worse, could it? As Miranda said, um, he's allowed the doubts over this Birmingham to Manchester line continue for days and days. And he's got to face the party faithful uh, in Manchester uh, from Sunday. Is it going to dominate the conference? You can tell them what he's trying to do is find some position that will mean that no one in his party shouts at him. But the mood of division is going to continue. And it's always just better off to just drain the poison. But I must admit, as well as high speed too specifically and obviously Miranda's exactly right would be this public policy disaster it feels almost like one of those kind of parables about the shortcomings of the Soviet Union you know under Tory Britain from 2010 to 2023 they eventually built a high speed railway that you know that was meant to link up London with the north and it stopped in with the greatest of respect to people in Ealing where the uh, hmm. where the line is nominally meant to stop it you know effectively went to the outskirts of London and stopped at Birmingham it's just so on the nose but I have to admit the other thing I thought listening to that interview is just oh I really fear for him in an election campaign if that kind of tetchiness and general sort of kind of this thing where it feels like he's just telling the interviewer he's much smarter than them it just it just gave me the same feeling that I used to feel like watching like late period uh Wenger Arsenal defend balls over the top <laughs> Sorry, I just I struggle so much with football metaphors, so I'm just going to... It was you know. stressful. Okay, yeah, it was, okay. Stressful. It was stressful. I, I didn't understand it either, so I thought gl <laughs> gliding for that, swiftly yeah. on. Um, the point Sunak makes, makes that more people uh, use cars than trains. I mean, he is trying to frame himself yet again as on the side of the motorist here. Is there something in that post-pandemic, perhaps with people commuting a bit less, working remotely more and a sort of perhaps slightly utopian vision of a future in which we'll all be someday, maybe not in coming decades, but eventually, you know, riding around in electric driverless cars mean that high-speed rail might not be worth pursuing at the cost at which it's currently pitched? So there's definitely something in the potential for the Conservative Party to kind of weaponize the motorist in the coming general election. That is absolutely 100% true. In terms of the reason why people are in their cars outside London, you know, people would argue that that's because the options for them not to be in their cars are not there. And you've got these hugely important northern cities where you just can't get from one to the other. And it is an absolute stranglehold on on the economy of that part of the country. I mean, the ONS did a study about two weeks ago, and I think it was, which showed that the, the, the income in London and the southeast was now pulling so far ahead of the income per head in those northern cities that, that they were saying the only way you deal with this is by trying to empower the cities of the north to actually sort of have a functioning city region and communicate between the two. I mean, clearly, there's an argument for the way that working practices are changing. But people don't only need to leave the house to go to work. You know, they need to go to hospital, they need to visit family. Mm -hmm, you course. want people to stay in those regions and become prosperous there. And at the moment, they all come to the southeast, or a lot of a high proportion of them do. They come to the southeast for universities and then stay here rather than going home, all of that. So it would feel like an abandonment, truly, of the kind of Boris Johnson and even Theresa May policy agenda mm -hmm. of spreading prosperity, I think. And that would really be sort of putting a full stop on an honourable aspiration of this period of Tory administration, I think.
Looking at another flip-flop that's occurred this week, the Labour Party has clarified, some might say U-turned, <laughs> that it is not going to strip private schools of charitable status. It will go ahead with imposing VAT and business rates on the private education sector. Stephen, there's been a lot of back and forth over whether this is a U-turn, some in Labour insist, well, we never actually said that. But a quick Google shows that Starmer himself said it, uh, Labour spokespeople said it. There has, there has at any rate been confusion over what the policy's been here. In terms of the actual letter of the policy, it's correct to say it's not a U-turn. But in terms of the, the retail bit, it is a U-turn. But I also think, more importantly, one of the reasons that Keir Starmer has been able to take the Labour Party quite some way from where it was when he found it is by being quite devious or I think ruthless is the word you use if you want the leader of the opposition's office to answer your calls. Um, but And as a result, the Labour Party has a, I would say, well-earned reputation for shiftiness. And actually, the thing we're seeing with both parties now, right, is that the Conservatives have this reputation for chaos because they've, you know, been going through prime ministers like their, you know, water. And the Labour Party has a reputation for shiftiness because Keir Starmer has had to kind of duck and dive or, you know, whatever euphemism you want to put on it in order to move the Labour Party from its Corbynite position some way to the right of where it fought the 2019 election. And it means that everything the parties do is refracted through that pre-existing prism. Like, the Labour Party clarifies and actually doesn't really change its policy in terms of the felt impact on private schools. And everyone goes, oh, there they go, you turning again, they're shifty. The Conservative Party has, whether it's High Speed 2 or Net Zero or banning smoking for everyone born after 2009... And everyone goes, oh, there they go, changing their minds, flopping about as usual. And I think it it's a reminder of, you know, to use a, a nerdy political science term, we often talk about voters being values voters, i.e. people who vote on ideology, but of course most voters are valence voters who vote on competence and their perception of the parties. And the big wound that both the political parties are carrying is that the Labour Party is going to go into the next election, yes, with the Labour Party's image much improved on 2019, but at the cost and its leader has a reputation for shiftiness and U-turning. The Conservative Party is going to go into the next election with a leader who actually at the moment is about as unpopular as Boris Johnson was in 2019, but facing a much less unpopular Labour leader than Jeremy Corbyn, and a party which just has this reputation for like running around with its hair on fire. <laughs> Miranda, Stephen talks there about the politics of whether this is a U-turn or not and whether this is going to make Starmer look shiftier. Um, let's just pause on the substance of, of the policy for a second. Um, we know that imposing VAT and business rates on schools is set to raise about £1.7 Not insignificant, equally not you know a massive taxation lever. Will Starmer be glad that this row this week is drawing attention to this policy? Or is there a slight chance that this could backfire? And I think in particular, I was talking to one Tory MP who um, said to me, it's going down really badly in his constituency where people think, you know, people who don't send their kids to private school haven't been, you know, privately educated themselves say, this is the politics of envy, the politics of nastiness. I think it's got all the markings of a policy which will end up pleasing no one. Because the problem is those who are enthusiasts for the idea of stripping the private schools of their special status and milking the parents who can afford them in order to put more money into the state education system will see the headlines about Labour backtracking and not like them. And as you say, that segment of the population who can afford to use private schools or perhaps would aspire so to do if they could, who are perhaps unhappy with their local state schools, 
won't like the policy either. So I think it is genuinely a bit of a risk. You alluded to what they're hoping to raise, though, in terms of the revenue. And the problem is they've started to sort of, you know, make their costings already in Labour and they've essentially spent that money. <laughs> and I think they do... About be- five times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're not going to abandon the policy because they need that that change. And Rachel but, Reeves, as we, as we know, will not even let them sort of pop out for a pint of yeah. milk because it's too expensive. So, But do we think or do you think if Labour get into power, they will actually pursue it. it? It could potentially lead to this huge exodus of people um, from private schools into the state sector for parents who couldn't afford an extra 20% VAT on fees. So I understand what you're saying, yeah. that they need to, because of the costings. And I do, I do. So those figures about how many kids would suddenly, inverted commas, flood into the state school system are put out by the private school. Yeah associations and they are a bit questionable to say the least so I think we don't need to worry about some kind of inundation of state schools I do think Labour would go through with some of these changes though and not just because they've spent the money already it's because this has been a bit of a sort of running sore in terms of the unfair playing field educationally so I think they would go through with this because the reason they've made what looks like a difficult U-turn this week is because they're actually trying to work towards a policy that is implementable. And the point is that they found out that stripping private schools of their charitable status would be a long, uncomfortable legal battle that they might not win, but changing the way in which they're taxed is something that they could implement through legislation. So actually... This unfortunate week, as it were, looking as if they're flip-flopping, is to do with coming up with a policy that's actually practical and that they could go through with. So we, we shouldn't forget one of the first things that the incoming Labour government did under Tony Blair was scrap the assisted places scheme, which was basically a scheme whereby the government went, yeah, OK, your local state school's a bit rubbish, but don't worry, the government will pay a private school to take you instead. Now, one of the reasons why New Labour did that is they, as with Keir Starmer, had decided that their political interests were best served by saying, look, don't worry, you don't need to worry about tax rises under Labour. We will stick to these very tight Tory spending plans, which meant the second they were in office, they were caught in this continual fight for revenue. And when you're when you're in a fight for revenue, you go, well, why are we giving X amount to these assisted places? Let's just get rid of it. And broadly speaking, although the change between Labour's policy on private schools last week and this week is relatively minor in terms of its impact, the other thing is, look, Changing private school status might actually result in the sector shrinking. Mm-hmm. Changing how they pay VAT means that you can go, brilliant, we're going to take this quite successful industry and increasingly is targeted internationally, and we will take a, yes, 1.7 or whatever it is, it's a tiny amount in terms of government revenue. But seeing as like the big subplot of whoever wins the next the next election, but let's face it, it'll be the Labour Party, um, the big subplot will <laughs> will be, you know, I mean, I know we big have to be like, generalization. Oh, it's, it's anyone's game, but yeah, no, it'll be the Labour Party, right? But um, will be this continual fight for ways they can find any form of money, right? Because, yeah, aging It's kind of marginal gain, yeah, exactly, like, in terms of revenue. This, mm-hmm. That's what we're yeah. going to be into. Yeah, yeah. it will do, yeah, basically, uh, whether it's Rachel Reeves or Rachel Reeves, the, the next <laughs> Chancellor will basically spend their whole time going... What can I do that's not income tax? What can I do that most voters will hopefully not notice that won't choke off growth? Now, I suspect the difficulty that the next Labour government will rapidly get into is that the that the middle of that Venn diagram is pretty tiny and it mostly ri- raises piddling amounts. But that is the big subplot here, is just trying to find any way that they can be like, oh, yeah, we would have more police, we would have more this, we would ma- have more X, without going into that death zone of income tax, VAT, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, we all know Stephen's views on the uh, likelihood or certainty of uh, a Labour victory uh, next year. Other views are available. One party that's certainly not going to be occupying number 10 is the Lib Dems. And here to join us in the studio to talk about uh, their conference this week is Anna Gross, the FT's uh, political correspondent. Hi, Anna. Hi, Lucy. So um, crack open the vitamins. Conference season is underway. Um, Anna, you weren't the only uh, one round the table to hit Bournemouth. Uh, Miranda and Stephen, <laughs> you were both also <laughs> the there, weren't you? The ranks of the FT. I, I know. I was really gutted to miss it. I got the lurgy early and seeing some very jolly, shall we say, pictures uh, of you all uh, made me feel huge uh, FOMO. But let's just set this conference in context because it was the first annual gathering the Lib Dems have had since 2019 in person following COVID and then at the Queen's death. It felt like there was a lot riding on it for, for various reasons, um, not least the way the polls are set out at the moment. Um, the Lib Dems could well be a kingmaker again um, next year. Before we get into the substance of, of, of what the conference was like, and Miranda and Stephen, I'll certainly ask you to compare it to, to previous years for Mood. Anna, you're still pretty new to covering mm. politics. And as a conference clean skin, <laughs> could you just tell listeners who've never had the joy uh, of, of attending a party conference or certainly a Lib Dem conference, what it was like? It was pretty weird. Yeah, I, I mean, just in terms of conferences, there was a lot going on. Kind of running from event to event, briefing to briefing, um, and then there's also all these fringe events, and they're quite fun to go along to. There was uh, a couple where I think like there were actually three or four where Vince Cable was criticising the Lib Dems' uh, policy on Brexit and rejoining the EU, which were quite fiery. Um, but then there were also some quite weird events. On the Saturday night, there was a, a Lib Dem disco, which was, as you might expect, were there socks and sandals. There were some socks and sandals. Okay, good. Muesli munching. <laughs> Not quite. Good moves um, at the disco? I didn't attend. I did walk up to the entrance, but I did not attend. Very but there was a very fun glee club, which listeners may have heard about, uh, where uh, Lib Dems sing from a kind of hymn book, songs about former members, about li liberal democracy, about kind of bashing the Tories. And it's very bizarre, uh, but it's but it's fun. Well, we've got a clip kindly recorded uh, by you, Miranda, from this very event. Okay, I thought I couldn't have cringed more than when <laughs> Rishi Sunak mispronounced North. Um, Miranda, can you just tell us what that was we just heard? That was a new song for this year. Okay. About Liz Spoken Truss. Spoken like a true aficionado. Uh, yeah, yeah. About Liz Truss not managing to outlast the famous lettuce in the stunt. But yeah, it's a crazy tradition of the Liberal Party. It used to be called the Liberal Review. So the, you know, comic songs at the seaside, very appropriate. And it's evolved into a kind of, yeah, homemade political satire but there was some pretty enthusiastic singing from my colleagues around the table here i would say they gave the beards and sandals a run for their money Stephen. i unashamedly love glee club and i think one it's part of the you know the long-standing british cultural tradition and i'm gonna do a second alienating football analogy this week of you know when you're on the terrace and you start singing about you know something that john terry has done into the tune of handles the messiah or whatever you know like it's, it's part of that tradition of coming up with with spontaneous poetry and songs about events and where people come together and they feel a sense of community and i love all of that communal stuff 
it's just it's just so Lib Dem, isn't it? What do you know? What's so funny about it? It's so FT. So the main song that everyone gets enthusiastic about at the Lib Dem Glee Club is called "The Land," and it's actually a la- a song about campaigning for land value taxation, which is something that our very own Martin Wolf is extremely enthusiastic about pushing to politicians at the highest level. But as 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 a as a candidate who might well win a seat this time, said, "What's the use of this? We've been singing this song for a hundred years, and we still haven't secured land value tax." Taxation. So there we are. Um, but Miranda, of course, you have uh, a noble background in the Liberal Democrats. You were press secretary to Paddy Ashdown when he was leader of the party. Like Stephen and I, we've all, we've all three of us been uh, around the, the conference block a few times. How did this year's compare to previous ones? And, and what did we learn from this week that we didn't know previously? So number one, the contrast with 2019 when the Lib Dems had gone a bit crazy with the idea that they were going to win an enormous number of seats. They'd have an, had a huge influx of defectors from the Labour Party and Change UK who'd sort of fallen in with them. They'd had a lot of donations from rich anti-Brexit business people who thought that Jo Swinson was going to be able to stop Brexit. And then she came up with that terrible pledge to revoke Brexit. This year, the contrast couldn't have been greater. They've had three terrible election nights in a row, only won 11 seats in 2019. The whole focus of the conference was incredibly pragmatic. It was only about what's our strategy for taking as many seats as possible off the Conservatives in the so-called Blue Wall, which is the kind of affluent southeast and West Country, and also, therefore, what are the policies that are really good on a leaflet, really good on the doorstep with soft Tories, so, Anna, you had a cracking scoop to kick off the conference that the Lib Dems got their biggest donation um, to date since 2019, uh, a million pound uh, donation um, from a deceased lawyer, I believe. Tell us how their fundraising is going and how that might um, restrain or bolster their campaign next year and how many seats they can spread their resources between, they think. So it's definitely ramping up. Uh, they they received 2.8 million in the first two quarters of 2023, which is way more than they received last year. Um, and they're feeling really positive about that. They've got a kind of coalition of donors who are giving to them regularly. That said, it's still completely dwarfed by what the Conservatives and Labour are getting. Just to give you a, a flavour of that, the Conservatives received in the, that same two-quarter period 22 million and including a 5 million donation from, from just one person. Um, and Labour received 12 million. So you get a bit of a sense of why their messaging is so targeted and why their their campaign is going to be so targeted on specific local areas. We're talking kind of the blue wall areas, uh, kind of in conservative heartlands um, and the West Country. I, I think the sense I get, although they would tried as much as possible to avoid saying how many seats they were hoping to win, again, learning lessons from 2019, the sense I got speaking to, to party insiders was 30 potentially 40 at a real push um, might be possible. And Miranda mentioned uh, that they have eschewed kind of indulgent discussions about some of their pet projects. They've swerved making kind of lofty, some might say pie in the sky, vows about things like scrapping tuition fees, because of course, if they did play kingmaker with Labour and they've made clear they are now an avowedly anti Tory party, they wouldn't go into coalition with the Conservatives. Um, They've kept it to sort of pretty narrow, specific retail policies. And one of the main ones on this was on cancer treatments. Mm. Yeah, so essentially, again, as they're trying to focus their campaign really locally and adapt it to local messaging, they focused 
pretty much on NHS and NHS waiting times. They did a really big kind of set piece on cancer waiting times, reducing those and actually legally mandating that people have to be get their first treatment within, I think it's 62 days. And, and then the other big national set piece thing is sewage. So, so one person, I hope I can say this, one party insider said, we are the party of shit. <laughs> the national party say. of excrement. Um... <laughs> Just one extra point on that, um, which I don't think we've touched upon, is that Ed Davey got in a bit of trouble, I guess, because he just again and again over the course of the weekend refused to get drawn on what the the party's policy was, or, or at least to, to kind of clearly state what the party's policy was in terms of the UK's future relationship with um, the EU, even though it's actually clearly set out in the party's uh, pre-manifesto document. So he kind of was refusing to just read out what's written in the document. That's really interesting that you say that, because obviously you were there and you heard the, the debate as it was going on. I was not there just kind of seeing the headlines. And I was struck um, that Davy claimed that Labour has nowhere near as ambitious a plan to restore relations uh, with the EU as the Lib Dems uh, do. And Stephen, I just sort of thought, Blimey, bit of a cheat claiming that, given the Lib Dems have just been trying to avoid this topic altogether. So what should I read from rhetoric like that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a party which quite literally is just the first clause, yeah, the first clause of their standing orders is something like the Liberal Democrats believe that our future is better in the European communities, as in they have, you know, they wanted to be in it since 1956. It was the biggest applause line in his conference speech was when he talked about fixing the relationship. But also... The reason why the Labour Party feels slightly more confident talking about Brexit is because the politics have changed. And that also means that the Liberal Democrats feel slightly more confident about talking about Brexit. I mean, the reality is, it's basically the policy of Lib the Lib Dems and Labour towards Europe is the same, which is we'll get as close as we think the voters will let us get away with it. For the Lib Dems, their anxiety is about those former seats they used to hold in Devon and Cornwall. And for Labour, it's about former seats they used to hold in ex-industrial parts of the North and West Midlands. There is a danger there, though, for the Lib Dems, which I think it's right to flag up. And actually, Professor John Curtis was down in Bournemouth risking the ire of Lib Dem activists <laughs> by pointing out some of the flaws in the current very cautious strategy. And that is that in a few seats, it's possible that Labour would actually kind of leapfrog the Lib Dems to take them off the Tories if voters think, well, OK, I'm really pro-European and Labour might win. And actually, Labour and the Lib Dems seem to be the same on Europe. Why not vote Labour? You know, so mm. there is a kind of danger there, but it's in a very few seats, really like two or three. And in the vast bulk of the targets that the Lib Dems are going for to get from the Tories, they're way, way more worried about sort of Lib Dem curious soft Tory voters being really put off if they start, in David Cameron's famous words, banging on about Europe, in this case, rejoining Europe. So they are being cautious, but there is a little inbuilt risk there if Labour is seen as a home for pro-European votes. One to watch. Well, alongside the Lib Dems in Bournemouth, there was major political posturing going on uh, on the other side of the Atlantic this week by Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who jetted into DC to give a speech on immigration to a right-wing think tank. It marked the strongest attack yet by a UK government minister on the UN Refugee Convention that was agreed in 1951. Um, Stephen, you've written about this this week, and 
I think one of the key questions you got me thinking about is whether there's any change of substance, really, in what we've heard from Braverman, or it's just additional emphasis. We've already heard her talk about an invasion of our shores by asylum seekers. Is this just more of the same, or should we be taking it more seriously from a policy perspective? Ultimately, on the kind of multiculturalism to integrationism or assimilationism sort of spectrum, the UK will continue to have a multiculturalist position towards how you you most effectively integrate new arrivals and the government doesn't propose to change that and you know like ultimately like we're, we're really talking about changes of emphasis and in many ways we're talking about an ongoing conservative leadership election and although of course some people disagree broadly speaking the consensus across Westminster across the Conservative Party is that whether it's Labour alone Labour in a hung parliament Labour in some kind of Liberal Democrat alliance there will be a Conservative leadership election in opposition. So this is really, I think, best assessed as Suella Braverman, who's actually, from a political perspective, having a remarkably successful run at this, trying to protect her advantage and to avoid the fate of every Home Secretary since we left the EU, which is having their leadership hopes destroyed Mm -hmm. by the small boats issue. And it seems to me that Downing Street was pretty rattled by it. You know, a splash in the Times basically confirming that Rishi Sunak had signed off on the speech and had given her permission um, to make this hint that the UK would be willing to leave the ECHR. You'd think, well, you know, you'd expect that to be the case. Clearly, people in Downing Street were were desperate to to stress that this was all done with his um, permission and he wasn't being um, outflanked. Um, uh, And Miranda, she's also split the party with kind of returning again to this idea of Britain potentially being willing to leave the ECHR. I spoke to Damien Green, chair of the One Nation group, who said that that would be enormously damaging. Do you think that Rishi Sunak is going to put that in the manifesto ahead of the next election? What, What will he be weighing up right now? Well, several Tories that I've spoken to think it's kind of inevitable that this is the direction of travel of the party, whether it's before or after an election defeat. Because, you know, this is the sort of pattern that we saw with the Brexit campaigners inside the Conservative Party, right? They keep going and they keep going. And eventually the leadership has to give them something. And then it turns into a promise. And then where are you? you end up directing the country in a particular direction. But I think what's also interesting about this is the decision of the leadership collectively. I mean, I completely agree with Stephen. This is actually all about Braverman's ambitions afterwards to become leader. But the decision of the leadership to kind of go along with it or endorse it or support her is kind of making a massive electoral bet as well on the part of the population that really cares about this stuff and is motivated by anti-immigration sentiment. And that is completely opposite from the kind of part of the country that might, for example, referring back to our previous conversation, swing Lib Dem in those seats where the traditional One Nation Tory view is kind of a party that isn't there anymore for those voters or they feel the party's left them rather than that they'd be leaving the party. So I think it's sort of showing that they're making making a sort of bet on which sort of voters they can attract at the coming election and sort of doubling down on that, which I think is not a confident move. You know, it shows that the party's not trying to reach out and that always shows you a party in a defensive posture. Well, let's finish by hearing your stock picks uh, for this week's political fix. Uh, Miranda, you first. Who are you buying or selling? Oh, golly. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to invest in Susan Hall. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, no, who is the, is the Conservative candidate for London mayor who is really snapping at the heels of Sadiq Khan in a poll that came out. Now, however much that poll might be a one-off, the disaster of the Ulez in suburban, and as Stephen rather charmingly called it in his newsletter the other day, the exurb of London, uh, you know, which went down really badly, means that the Tories have sort of got a boost of morale in London. To be clear, she means the policy, me referring to <laughs> London. It was not, that was a good and accurate yeah. description of outer London, yeah. but I just like, the, like that you used the phrase. Yeah, so Susan Hall, the Tory candidate, who is looking in quite good position, particularly if, for example, the Reform Party, which is the kind of rump UKIP rebrand, decided to pull out, because they're on about 7% in London, which is quite high for London. If they decided to do a deal with the Tories and pull out, maybe Susan Hall would be in with a chance of dislodging Sadiq Khan from City Hall. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, the mayoralty is moving to first past the post this year from the supplementary vote um, system. So that could give the Tories um, a boost. I actually interviewed Susan Hall um, this week. And one thing that really struck me um, was how she answered all the controversies that have arisen over her social media use, you know, liking posts, referencing Enoch Powell, endorsing a, a post that suggested the 2020 presidential election had been stolen from Donald Trump. And in particular, there was a tweet she had endorsed about Sadiq Khan that called him the nipple height mayor of Londonistan. Now, when I quizzed her on this, she said to me, um, well, she hadn't known that Londonistan was this sort of racist term that had that had this meaning that London was overrun by Muslims. But she did admit that she had, in her words, very naughtily thought it was quite amusing that the diminutive mayor had been described as nipple height. So I was very surprised when she then turned up on LBC and asked about the same tweet, sort of suggested, oh, did, did I do something with that tweet? I, I don't recall. She certainly recalled a few days previously when I when I spoke to her. So I'm well, not I, sure I did she... say I was regretting the need to invest, okay, invest well, in her uh, stock, you know. I just thought I'd, uh, I, I'd yeah. point that out. Um, Anna, who are you buying or selling? Well, because I spent a good chunk of my week at Lib Dem conference, I am buying Daisy Cooper, who's the deputy leader of the Lib Dems. I thought she was pretty impressive. I had a couple of people say to me, who not necessarily affiliated with the party, who was saying, you know, and and one donor who said, you know, that they think that she could potentially be the next leader of the party. And also, as you rightly pointed out, there's a there's a good chance. I mean, that, that Lib Dems could form some part of governing the country, if. Uh, Labour doesn't manage to secure a majority. And I think in that uh, scenario, she would probably have a role to play. Great. More to come from Daisy Cooper, I'm sure. Stephen, who are you buying or selling? So I'm actually going to take the opposite end of Miranda's bet. I'm going to buy stock in Sadiq Khan. Now... I'm already holding him, by the way, so mine's a hedge, <laughs> just to be <laughs> absolutely clear. Nice try. Um, yeah. So essentially, um, it is a bit of a myth to think that London is a Labour city. Broadly speaking, the long-running evidence is that the Labour Party starts with a core of about 35%, and the um, the Conservative Party starts with a core of about 32%. That's what Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey got in 2021, and that is what the two polls we've had thus far of the mayoral race suggest that Sadiq Khan and Susan Hall are going to get. The bear case, you know, the pessimistic case against Sadiq Khan is his record is not that much to write home about and that, broadly speaking, people will want change after two terms. Now, I think that is that is that, is, that stands up and works. 
But the reason why I'm on the other side of, of, of that case is I think a lot of the, oh, Susan Hall can do it, is a bit like, well, she's polling the Conservative core and she only needs to get some extra votes from somewhere. Now, look, if the Reform Party is polling better than UKIP ever managed to in London, despite doing worse in every actual election, I just see no evidence to believe in these reform voters who keep turning up in opinion polls, but then, like McCavity, when it comes to local elections and by-elections, they, you know, they, they vanish like snow in spring. I don't believe it. I think, broadly speaking, Sadiq will get 35%, Susan Hall will get 32%, and I think she is going to do just enough than Sadiq Khan for all his you know, as I say, pretty thin record, will be able to hold her off. But ultimately, the big mistake of the Conservative campaign in London is just because some of the people who are voting for them are really, really angry doesn't mean their votes count any more than the people who will grudgingly vote for Sadiq Khan. Well, I'm glad we've got views on both sides of the spectrum there. For me, I'm going to sell Lawrence Fox, who, as well as being uh, a rent-a-gob right-wing firebrand, is also, of course, the uh, head of the Reclaim um, party. Uh, I think uh, he is uh, uber-cancelled. I don't know what the next level of cancellation is, but um, anyone listening who hasn't heard about uh, his, frankly, outrageous remarks on GB News this week has obviously been living under a rock. Well, that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, do subscribe and please do leave us a review. I've put links for any topics mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. They're free to read for Political Fix listeners. And don't forget to sign up for Stephen's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 free days. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music by Breen Turner and sound engineering by Jake Fielding. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here, same time, same place, next week. <laughs>